Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. Father in heaven, we thank you for your uh, perfect holiness. God, we affirm who you are as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God, we build our life uh, on the statement that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. And we come together, God, to affirm our faith, to challenge each other, but above all, God, just to lift up the holy name of God, to lift up the name of the Son of God, Jesus, and to lift up the name of the Holy Spirit. God, we affirm, we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Good morning. Welcome again to Horizon West Church. Uh, for those who knew that I was not feeling well, I shared that last week. Thank you for your prayers. I feel much better. I feel like I was sick, if that makes sense. I feel a little weak, a little tired, but uh, fortunately not contagious and I'm going to make it through today by the grace of God. Last week I, I shared an illustration, if you were here and you remember it, uh, of trying to pray for people in Spanish while I was in Belize and struggling to do that. And you might remember the statement that I was able to get out and asking people to, to, to pray for them and what was, uh, what, what was it that I could pray for them in. And, and the statement that I was able to put together was a duct tape version of Spanish where it was, que es importante ahora, what is important now. And I shared with you last week that what Paul was doing in the book of Corinthians, what he has been doing is building toward the place where he's able to say to a church in a place called Corinth, this is what is important Now, this is what really matters. And so what we'll do for the next several weeks is we'll be in a series called What Really Matters, where Paul is going to get to the the heart of the gospel, to the heart of faith issues that need to be fleshed out by people in a place called Corinth. But before we do that, I want you to know why this matters for us. See, it's one thing for something to matter to another people in another place in a historic distant past, but why does it matter to us who live in the greater Horizon West area in 2023? To to us who live in a world of fast food and high-speed internet, what really matters? To us who live in a round-the-clock news cycle and an in-your-face political environment, what really matters? In a world of back-to-school and back-to-back work trips, what matters here and now. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says this, and we affirm its truth, the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than a double-edged sword. It pierces even to the point of dividing our soul from our spirit, our joints from our marrow, and it is discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And if the word of God is living and active, and we believe it is, then the question becomes first, What was it saying when it came to the people it first came to? But secondly, what is it saying to us here and now? Listen, there are a lot of people this Sunday morning across the globe who are going to read a passage of the Bible or hear a pastor or a priest read a passage of the Bible. And they're going to do some performative religious ritual based on the Bible. But if the Word of God is living and active, then it must come off of the pages and be planted into our hearts. It's the reason Paul said, 
let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The word of God is meant to come inside of our hearts, our minds, our lives and change who we are. And so in that vein, Paul is going to seek in the passage that we're in today, he's going to seek to answer this question. How do followers of Jesus engage with the godless and unbelieving people who are all around us? How how do we engage with a culture that is far from God and some might argue increasingly further and further from him? And so what I want to do this morning, and we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, feel free to turn there or follow along on the screen behind me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I want to offer three guidelines, but they're really two guidelines, you'll see why in a second. Three guidelines for Christians who are engaging with culture, not just in the first century, but in the 21st. Let me read for us 1 Corinthians chapter 8, I'm just going to read the first few verses here to begin. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he or she is known by God. So the first priority that Paul is going to highlight in this passage for believers engaging with culture, the the guideline that he's going to highlight for us is this, our priority is love. Let me say that again. Our priority as followers of Jesus is first and always love. Now you need to know something about the political landscape of the first century. It was clearly defined and deeply divided. Does it sound familiar? It was really clear who us was and who them was. You had two dominant cultures, the Greeks and the Romans, they're jockeying for supremacy in the world, but underneath that you have ethnic minorities like the Jews, they're not jockeying for supremacy, they're vying for survival. They're trying to figure out how do we survive our culture, our language, our customs, and yes, our religious beliefs in a, in a culture where the Greeks and the Romans are vying for supremacy, where the, the, the Greeks and the Romans are basically squashing every other culture of its day. And then you have an even further, uh, uh, you know, secondary or tertiary group, which is followers of Jesus. They're even lower on the totem pole. They have no ethnic identity. They have no universal language. They're just trying to figure out how to take the teachings of a rabbi named Jesus, who also happened to be the Son of God and Savior of the world, and follow him into a world where there was no blueprint for that. They were the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures, but they're basically living moment by moment on the edge of a new reality going, how do we then live in the culture as followers of Jesus? Corinth was essentially ground zero for a clash of cultures. And those living in Corinth and trying to follow Jesus were the collateral damage in some ways from that. One issue for the Corinthian believers rose to the surface above all the others and highlighted more than all the others the tension that they faced. And that was something called food sacrifice to idols. When Paul says in verse 1, now concerning food sacrifice to idols... I've shared this earlier in the, in the other series. When Paul says now concerning something, what he's doing is he's responding to something they asked him about. So when he says now concerning uh, the betrothed, now concerning those who are married, he's referring to something the Corinthians penned in a letter to him going, we have questions about this. 
The Corinthian believers had questions about this thing of food sacrificed to idols. Now again, Corinth is, is a hotbed for cultural kind of infusion. So in Corinth, actually around the whole nation of Greece, there were temples to the Greek gods. And in Corinth itself, some of the, the largest and most significant of those temples existed, including temples to Apollos, to Poseidon, and to Aphrodite. And so it was common practice for the, the Greeks of the, the culture and the civilization to gather in Corinth and make ritual sacrifices to the so-called gods of the Greeks. Now it's clear that the Corinthians were surrounded by that reality, but the question comes up, and we've got to address this, why would they have had first-hand experience with food sacrifice to idols? And I don't believe that the Christians are still going into the Greek temples and, and, and eating food sacrifice to idols. That wouldn't make any sense, right? They know at this point that there's been a line of demarcation, that the way of Jesus is different than the way of the Greeks. So what is it that's causing them to encounter this dilemma of food sacrificed to idols? Here's what I've come to believe. I believe the Corinthian believers, still living in the world as they always had, still with the same friends and family member and social network that they always had, were being invited into the homes of people who were not yet followers of Jesus. And when they were being offered a meal, there was a high likelihood that that food, that meat, had been sacrificed to one of their Greek deities. So now we got a problem. Can I, as a follower of Jesus, eat something that has been offered as an act of worship to a pagan god? This is a real problem. And in verse 1, when it says, in quotes, all of us possess knowledge, what the Corinthians are saying is, Paul, it'd be one thing if we didn't know better. It'd be one thing if we went in and we didn't have any idea where this meat came from, but it's really obvious. They don't try to hide it. They're proud of the fact this food has been sacrificed to idols because if you eat food, food sacrificed to idols, there is the hope or even the promise that you're going to be blessed, that you'll have the favor of the gods, that they will protect you. So this was a known fact. The believers are now eating food that those they're eating with are eating for the purpose of being blessed by the gods. Do you see the challenge this creates? This is a complex issue. We are not the first generation of Christians to face challenging cultural questions. They say we all possess knowledge. We, we know what's going on here. Paul, help us out. And Paul uses that statement, all of us possess knowledge, to expose a misunderstanding that the Corinthian believers have. He says at the end of verse 1, this knowledge that you speak of, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. It is possible to have a couple of different kinds of knowledge, so let's talk about that. It's possible to have a kind of knowledge or a type of knowledge that is nothing more than facts or information. I could share with you some facts and information about my wife. I shouldn't have to look at my notes, I don't know why I did that. My wife... <laughs> It's about five foot three. She might claim she's a little taller than that. She has Puerto, Puerto Rican and German uh, ancestry. She grew up in Fort Meade, Florida. You've probably never been there. Maybe you've passed through it. She's got a sister. She's got two parents. She was a cheerleader in high school and in college. I've probably shared more than she would want me to at this point, but these are facts and information about my wife. And just by hearing those things, you could now share the same facts and information that I have. 
But there is another kind of knowledge that goes way, way beyond facts and information. It runs way deeper and is much richer than merely a fact about a person. And that is access not to the information, but access to the person themselves. I have a knowledge of Nikki, who she is, what she likes and doesn't like, what time she likes to go to bed at night, what time she likes to wake up, the, the, the things about her, her uh, character that I know to be true of her, that I have a confidence in, that go way beyond what any of you have, even though some of you have some access to her in that way, none of you have the access that I have as her husband. When Genesis says that Adam knew Eve and she conceived, he's talking about more than information. Does that make sense? There is a knowledge of person that is intimacy. And Paul's going to say, yes, Corinthians, you've got knowledge. You understand the things that you believe about Jesus and you understand that there is a, there's a sharp contrast or stark contrast with these Greek deities. You, there's a gap here going, I don't know how to reconcile this information that I have. But he says, there's something better than information. It's called love. I'm going to illustrate this for you with the balloon. Practice this, hopefully it goes well. He says, knowledge puffs up. Knowledge is like saying, hey, I, I learned all 66 books of the Bible and I can quote them in order from Genesis to Revelation. I got knowledge. Not only that, but I know how to pronounce the hard names in the Bible like Habakkuk and Mephibosheth. I've got that information. I can do that. Or maybe better yet, I learned this new theological term in seminary that I can drop into my sermons and really, really impress people. I got knowledge. And Paul says, that's good for you. You're puffed up with a lot of hot air. But what happens if I try to build my life on knowledge? I go, look at all, I've got credentials behind my name. I can impress people in a conversation and I can build my life on something that is about as sturdy as a hot air balloon or a balloon full of hot air. And Paul's saying, this is not the thing you need to be building your life on, Corinthians. Horizon West Church, this is not what we're called to build our lives on. Faith is more than just saying, I know these things to be true about God. Faith is saying, because these things are true about God, it's going to change who I am, my posture toward people, the way I think, my attitude, my purpose, my mission in life. All of that is summed up in this word, love. Paul says, knowledge puffs up, but love does something else. Love builds up. I, I, can, I can stand upon a firm foundation if my life reflects the love of Jesus. Look, we'll build our homes on cinder blocks because we trust them to be a sturdy foundation. When storms and when hurricanes come, we know that the, the foundation will hold because it's strong. And a lot of people mistakenly get these things backwards. They go, oh, love is just like this flippant, you know, feeling, this, this I fell in love with somebody, or oh, I, I love pizza. It's not biblical love. Biblical love is something so strong, so sturdy, so formidable that you can literally build your life on it and you will overcome anything the world throws your way. So it's not about knowledge, it's about love. Now love requires some knowledge, right? 
It's helpful that I know when my wife's birthday is or when her anniversary is. But it's only helpful because it motivates me to action, to buy the card, to schedule the date, to tell her, hey, I'm so glad 13 years later that we are still married and thriving. I'm so glad you're the woman that God chose for me. The information or knowledge only matters in relationship to love. And what's happened in in the church is that sometimes we've divorced those two concepts. We look at a person who's got a lot of information, we go, hey, that person needs to be a deacon. Make them a small group leader. We've got pastors whose lives reflect nothing of love for their spouse, their children, or the actual people in their lives, but they can get up and preach a really good sermon and we applaud them. Paul says, no, it's not the foundation. The greatest among us is the one who loves God and loves people well. Another way to say it is this, the genuineness of our faith is tested not by how much we know about God, but by how much we love him, and the evidence of that is found in our love for other people. That's the test or the evidence of our faith. One of Jesus' closest followers, John, got a reputation as the disciple of love, and listen to what he said. If anybody says, I love God and yet hates his brother, he's a liar. The one who doesn't love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God, the one he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, Jesus, that whoever loves God must also love his brother. So the question becomes not how much information can I accumulate. The question becomes how well can I demonstrate my love for God and my love for other people. For Corinth, the way they might apply it is this, that they would they could do one of a few things. So remember, we're talking in the context of food sacrifice to idols. If you're going to get an invitation from somebody to eat in their home, you can expect they're probably going to serve you food sacrifice to idols. How do you respond? Let's, let's make this practical. Corinthians, what do we do? And what Paul is going to say is you've got three options, basically. Number one, you decline the invitation. You say, no, no, I'm not going there. Right? God called me to be holy. I'm going I'm to come out and be separate. But where does that leave that lost person outside of your life, outside of relationship with you? It's something you could do, right? It's one of the options. Another option is to accept the invitation, uh, but then raise a fuss or ask a bunch of questions when they serve the food. Hey, I need to know where this has been. I need to know what God this has been sacrificed to. I need, you could do that. That's an option as well. Or there's this third option where you eat what is served with gratitude toward God and with graciousness toward your host. Did you know this is what Jesus prescribed in Luke chapter 10 when he told the disciples? He said, when you enter a village, go in and eat and drink whatever is set before you. What? (laughs) Eat and drink whatever they put in front of you. Let me make a big deal out of it, right? And then Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 27, I'm not going to share that because we'll get there in a few weeks, but he says it like abundantly clear. The third option is the right option. When you go into the home of the unbeliever and they serve you food, whether or not it was served to a, to, a, to a Greek god or goddess, just eat the food. Be gracious to your host. Give thanks to God. In other words, if you're invited to the table of someone who doesn't yet believe in Jesus, don't push back, pull close. Now this has a thousand applications for us today. What are the ways in which an unbeliever might try to engage us and we go, oh, no, I'm too Christian for that. I can't go to that party. I can't, be, I can't be in that home. I can't eat this or drink that. Like, I'm one of those holier than thou's. And Paul's going to say, don't push back. Wherever you can, wherever possible, pull close to that person in love. 
So let's make it relevant to us. What if my coworkers want, to join, uh, want me to join them at the bar after work to celebrate a big win? Not my coworkers, we don't do that, but I'm just saying, <laughs> I'm putting it in first person language. If your coworkers, now maybe a reason you push back, you had a, a struggle with alcohol or there's some kind of issue, you need to do that, do that. But if it's not, if it's just a legalism thing, like, you know, wrestle that down. What, what if our neighbors invite my family to a rite of passage ceremony for their daughter at a Hindu temple. <gasps> Am I allowed to go into the Hindu temple? What, what do I do? I was invited. Do I go? What if my atheist friend asks me to join him in linking arms about some social justice issue that I actually believe in together? Oh, but I can't be seen linking arms with somebody everybody knows is an atheist. Or do I flip all of that on its head and have a faith that's firm enough and confident enough and strong enough to say, God, I'm going headfirst into the messy lives of lost people because I believe when you put Jesus up against any other so-called God or deity, Jesus wins. The lesson of Mount Carmel where the 700 prophets of Baal were slashing their bodies saying, deliver, throw fire from heaven, and Elijah let them do it and simply stood up after dousing the altar with water and prayed a simple prayer that the lesson is this. Where God is, fire falls. And we don't need to worry so much about this ideology, this belief, this so-called God. And here's why. We're going to get into this next. The second guideline is the guideline we need. We, we need this. Our faith is firm. Our faith is firm. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Go back there with me to verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. And that there is no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods both in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things are and through whom we exist. I want to leave that last, uh, that last sentence or that last verse on the screen for a minute. And I want to paint a picture for you of this dinner scene where somebody is bringing out food sacrificed to idols. Again, I know this isn't our, our context, but, but you're going to understand the principle, how it applies. Somebody brings out this food sacrificed to idols. And they believe that this food, when we consume it, will bring about either the blessing of, of the gods or curses if we don't eat it, right? So we're put in that position. Now, believers in Jesus know better that that's not actually what's going to happen. What the believers in Jesus know is that so-called idol is a stick or a stone. And if that so-called idol is nothing more than a stick or stone, then that so-called food sacrificed to idols is what? It's just food. <laughs> you see the logic here that Paul's building on? That there isn't anything, called, there's no such thing as the God of fertility. There's no such thing as the God of, of you know, what, war or the God of whatever, you know, the oceans. There's, there's, those things don't exist. When they offer you food sacrificed to idols, it's food that's just food. Therefore, eat it with thanksgiving because where does food come from? From the one, one God whom we serve. It's his. Don't relinquish that. Don't go, I can't, I can't touch that because that's tainted. No, no, no. God created it. He created it for good. 
So receive it with gratitude and with graciousness in your heart. Paul says, if an idol has no real existence, and it doesn't, then all we're left with is this food from whom God created for our blessing, for our good. So food sacrificed to idols, by the way, this is important to say, would not have felt like a second-tier issue to the Corinthians. It's one thing for us to talk about things that are kind of on the periphery, like, oh, that's not really a big deal. I promise you, in the first century, this was a very, very big deal. And I just wonder, I don't know for sure, but I can imagine this, that if there were Corinthian believers going, well, certainly you can't be a follower of Jesus and dot, dot, dot. No real Christian could ever eat food sacrificed to idols. Do we do that in our day? Absolutely we do. I've heard it. I've heard it inferred. I've heard it even said explicitly in certain cases. It's impossible to be a real Christian and watch that show. You can't be a true Christian and be a Democrat or Republican. There's no way a follower of Jesus could vote for this candidate or that candidate. You can't be a a Christian and enjoy drinking beer on occasion. Like, real Christians don't dot, dot, dot. Whatever you put in that dot, dot, dot shows the weakness of your faith. Christianity is not built on a code of conduct of what we do and don't do, who we do and don't vote for. It's built on something much deeper and truer than that. To be a Christian is to lay hold of the promise that God sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And not just to mentally assent to that, but to let that truth become become integrated into our lives through the gift of Holy Spirit who's leading us day in and day out as we seek to follow the teachings of the word of God with the spirit as our guide. That's what a Christian is. And these demarcators of they don't do this and they don't do that and real Christians would never reveal a weakness in the faith that we claim. One of the problems today in America is that whoever seems the most authoritative and, and we, we determine that by whoever sets the highest bar and speaks the loudest, whoever seems the most authoritative is perceived as the most worthy of trust. So if that politician or that news anchor or that celebrity pastor just says it strong enough, we go, oh, that must be true, right? And and, and there's a reason for that. I want to be gracious with that. We live in a world that it feels like the foundation is just being pulled out from under us, right? The generation alive today is looking for something firm and sturdy to lay hold of. The problem is we're finding it in the wrong places. We're finding it from people who line up with our political ideas but have nothing to do with our faith in Jesus. People who would mock and reject the worship experience we just had, they would just support the candidate we like. And we got to come back to this idea that what we have is not a political ideology or a worldview. It is a faith. Most of all, it is a faith in the person and work of Jesus. To elevate personal convictions or political affiliations to the level of biblical truth is not a sign of Christian strength, but of weakness. In other words, it's a sign of spiritual immaturity. Immaturity. In Romans chapter 14, verse 4, Paul is addressing a similar group around a similar issue. Listen to what he says. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld because the Lord God is able to make him stand. 
So what do we as a church, what, what do we as Horizon West Church, what do we do when people show up with legalistic agendas? Hey, hey Chris, we, we need to make sure that nobody in the church votes for, <laughs> we need to make sure that nobody in the, in the church is out doing, like, what do we do with those people? And the answer is what we do with every person. We welcome them here. But we don't let them near the thermostat. Does it make sense? Everybody's welcome, but we protect the thermostat pretty carefully. We, we, we've had people show up and they're like, man, you know, you need to know I was a deacon for 38 years at my last church and, you know, I know everything there is to be about the Bible. I'm going to be the, the best, you know, thing you've got going. So when you're ready, you give me, you give me a chance. And I'm like, Good, great, you know, I'll, I'll call you when we're ready, you know. And then they go to the, the, the discard pile. Not, not as, as people, they're not going to be leaders, Right? And sometimes in churches, we, we, we fall into this thing where we're like, hey, we're, gra- we're grasping onto the people with, again, the most knowledge or information or, or the most legalistic viewpoints, right? Because it's hard to argue with people like that. And we say, actually, we, we identify leaders the opposite of that. We identify leaders as those who want to follow in the spirit of Jesus, who John says came from the Father, full of both grace and truth. The problem isn't just that legalists lack grace, they lack truth. The truth is jacked up. The the truth is that God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them. That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. That's the truth. John says the law came through Moses, but grace and truth, something much better, come through Jesus. Listen, there are always going to be people among us who still want to follow Moses. But what we're going to commit to is we're going to follow Jesus and lead others to do the same. And we're going to do that with the, these twofold ideas of a, of a love that takes priority and a faith that is firm. How then do we protect the unity of the church in the midst of wildly different viewpoints? Can we just acknowledge that? In this room and those watching online, there are some wildly different viewpoints. But Jesus said, I'm praying that they may all be one in the way that I and the Father are one. So how do we protect that? So here's the third guideline, and here's why it's really only two guidelines. Because we're going to return to guideline number one. Our priority is love. Not only for the unbeliever, that's what Paul's talking about first, this idea that we would do whatever we can to engage lost people. But now he's going to kind of pivot, take a different perspective. Our priority is also love when it comes to the way we deal with and interact with each other. So let me read the rest of 1 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning at verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. He says, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and we are no better off if we do. But be careful, or take care, that the right that you have does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anybody sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? And if that person's conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols, and so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, this brother for whom Christ died. And so sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience while it is weak, you sin against Christ himself. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat so that I might not make my brother stumble. I love what Paul does here because he goes to the wall to make the point that it doesn't matter if you eat the food sacrificed to idols. Not a big deal. And he ends the argument saying, 
but there's a situation in which I would never again touch the stuff. Why? Because he's guided by these guidelines. Our priority is love and our faith is firm. And so here's what he does. Sometimes legalism is a chosen path. This, this was true of the Pharisees. Remember when Jesus showed up, the religious leaders, they were like these dogmatic, you know, they count their steps on Sabbath. You know, they, they, they put heavy burdens on people. Jesus says, you don't even help those people. You just heap condemnation on them. For the Pharisees, legalism was a chosen path. When the grace of God showed up in the person of Jesus, they crucified him. But there are a lot of other people for whom legalism is not necessarily a chosen path. It's a discipleship issue. When, when you are first a Christian, when you are first a follower of Jesus, you, you, want, you want to go so far in that you're like the greatest Christian who ever lived. And that's a beautiful thing. A lot of times younger Christians, teenagers, young adults, they're like, I'll get, I'll get these texts. Hey, pastor, you know, how long can I fast before I die? <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not giving medical advice. Listen, this is not going to happen. They're the ones signing up to go on these missions trips, right? Like they're the ones going, yeah, maybe I'll go be a doctor and make a lot of money. Maybe I'll become a doctor and make no money because I want to serve in a developing country and be the hands and feet of Jesus. Like, like younger people sometimes have these wildly huge dreams and ambitions and aspirations. And the Bible does not say as older Christians were to go, hey, just give it time. It'll cool down. But what we are to do is help them to steward that passion, that zeal for the Lord in ways that are going to be beneficial both for themselves and for other people. Sometimes it's a discipleship issue. It's the difference between being a parent and a grandparent, right? When you are a parent, especially with your first child, you, you jack that kid up. And don't act like you didn't. Because you were experimenting with parenting. And most of us, our default setting was not to be too gracious, but to be way too hard. I remember when my daughter Addison was like 18 months, I gave her her first chore. And, and that was to, she, she had started walking. So I'm like, well, now you have chores. And so her chore was to feed the dog. And one time, my 18-month-old daughter, who had been walking for about four months, spilled the dog food on the kitchen floor, and I erupted. And I think about that now. I'm like, who was I? Like, what kind of a monster blows up on an 18-year-old child for trying to do her... What 18-month-old child has chores? Like, but it was just this... And, and Nikki was always better about going, hey, this is, you're, this is way too hard. I have seen, I'm not there yet, won't be there for a very long time, I have seen that some people whose, who's, you know, dial is set toward really, really hard, firm parenting, all of a sudden they become grandparents, and it's like, yes, you can have ice cream for breakfast. <laughs> yes, you can scream at Papa, and it's okay. Like, you can get away with almost anything. And the reason is that sometimes what happens, not always, but sometimes what happens is the friction and the tension and the hardship of life softens us over a time. Uh, the, the way that the waves of the ocean kind of erode and soften the rock, sometimes over time, the things that were so big and so important and so hard and narrow and firm become a little softer. And this is especially true as I've watched believers get older. The, the zeal that they had, the dogma, the firm, it, it doesn't completely go away, but, but it's channeled more healthy. It's channeled through grace and compassion and love. It's, it's the idea that when we go from parenting to grandparent, grandparenting, things change. And, and so what am I, what am I, what point am I making? This is the point I'm making. If, if legalism is for a person a chosen path, like they show up here and that's the hill they're going to die on, we confront it boldly. That's the way Jesus did it. 
He called people whitewashed tombs and, 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 and snakes and vipers. I mean, he confronted legalism hardcore. But if it's a discipleship issue, we handle it very differently. We handle it with the same grace, compassion, and love with which we deal with unbelievers, with those outside of the faith. And so if it's a discipleship issue, we're, we're very careful. In fact, Paul warns that the exercise of our faith as mature believers could actually be the very thing that destroys our younger brothers and sisters. And he says, then, then you're not acting in love. You, you may be doing a good job of engaging lost people and pursuing them, but if in the pursuit of unbelievers, your younger brothers and sisters in the faith are emboldened to do things that they don't believe are right for them, we have another problem, right? I, I hope one of the things you see is, man, this stuff is complex and it is messy. It would be so much easier to just say, give me the Ten Commandments and let me leave it at that. But the Word of God doesn't work that way and the Gospel goes deeper than that and the Spirit of God enters those hard places where we have to discern what the Spirit of God would do based on what we know of the Word of God and the redemptive history of life. It's hard stuff. The mature believer enters the hard space and carefully navigates so that we can win as many as possible. Both those outside of the faith and those who are young and weaker within the faith. Paul's conclusion is that eating or reclining at table, if such a thing causes a brother to stumble, I'm done doing it. If I can do that in such a way that it doesn't cause an issue, then that's fine, but I'm not going to do anything to cause a younger brother or sister to stumble in their faith. The same scene could play out in our context as it relates to the things that we drink, the media we consume, the places we go, we need to be very careful that while we have freedom in Christ, our freedom doesn't become a stumbling block for someone else. Oh man, you got to watch this show, it's so good. Well, if that person's new in the faith, they might go, oh, apparently there's no boundaries. I can just watch anything I want to watch. Ah, i got to be careful. got to be careful that my exercise of freedom, my exercise of Christian liberty, doesn't become a stumbling block. Now, this is only an issue for those of us who are a little more mature in the faith right? It's not carte blanche, like actually the longer you go in your walk with Christ, it's not like you get more and more rights, you get less and less. Your life becomes more fully surrendered to Jesus the older you get. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ so that I no longer live. It's just Christ living in me. And the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Complex Christianity. That's what we're dealing with in this passage. Complex Christianity. So, so a real quick recap, this is kind of Paul's argument in three phases. Number one, Paul wants us to make every effort to engage unbelievers in our lives and with the gospel. Do anything you can do short of sinning to get into the lives of lost people. Number two, I'm careful that my faith is firm enough to engage in those ways and yet not be influenced by the lost pe person or people, right? I, I make sure it's like when you're standing on something, pulling somebody up, it's hard to do, right? easier to be pulled down. So number two is after I'm engaging in the lives of lost people, I'm making sure the influence is primarily going from me and not to me. That's about a firm faith. And then third, even if those two things are true, I'm careful that as I exercise my faith, my life doesn't become a stumbling block to a weaker Christian, a younger believer. Again, not about pacifying hardened legalists. This is about pursuing lost people and protecting younger Christians. That's Paul's advice to us. What does this all mean in the day-to-day? -day? What does this all mean for us in Horizon West Church? And so I want to close with this. 
I want to ask the question and imagine together what becomes possible if there were truly a church where dozens or even hundreds of people take seriously the call to make love our priority and to live with a firm faith. And here's what I think happens. Those outside of the faith begin to see that we value them enough to enter hard space with them. We don't consign them to a, to a category, a certain political ideology or, or faith. We say, your life matters and I want to enter it. Those lost people begin to discover that our faith isn't threatened by the presence of other faiths. It does us no favors when people see us running scared, man, if this happens or that happens. No, no, we have a confident faith. Our faith will survive whatever the culture throws at us because it's rooted in Christ. They see that. And then third, those who are younger in the faith see us doing the hard thing of being willing to even not do things that we otherwise could do because we care about them. We care that their, their pursuit of Jesus, that, that flower that's begun to grow from the seeds of the gospel is protected, is stewarded, is nurtured. And all of that becomes possible as we exercise the guidelines that are given to us in 1 Corinthians 8. This is hard to do in the context of a Sunday morning church experience. So let me tell you where I think this is going to show up most clearly in the life of Horizon West Church. These issues, for better or worse, are going to show up in our groups. They already have. We've had groups, home groups, small groups that are part of this church, who died a painful death because of some of these secondary issues that they couldn't quite resolve. It's tough. Hard to see that. We've had a lot of other groups who entered the space of those critical conversations, and because of spiritual maturity, I'm looking at some of them now, they were able to navigate, navigate differences in the way that they thought about or perceived different cultural issues, political issues, even theological issues, but made love their priority, and their groups survived and are healthier and stronger than ever. That's what mature believers do. And why am I telling you this? Well, I'm telling you because we're in the midst of a relaunch of our group's ministry. We're calling people to step up, people of mature faith. You don't have to have all the information and knowledge in the world, but you got to love God and love people who would say, hey, I'll open my home or, or I'll open my giftings to be used as a host or a leader of a home group. To, to be the person who's entering some of those very difficult spaces and having those tough conversations to lead people in their discipleship journey of faith. And so I want to give you a real practical next step. If you feel any kind of uh, impulse or tug or, or opportunity to become a group leader. We have something coming up on August the 27th. It's going to happen right after our 11 o'clock service where we're going to be training our group leaders around some of the very things we're talking about here. What does it look like to be a gospel-centered group? What does it look like to be a hospitable and relationally driven group? This Sunday uh, gathering is, is not only for those who have any interest in becoming a group leader. We are also asking all of our current and existing group leaders to participate in that. Because we want to make sure we're all on the same page, right? We, we don't want people wildly diverting in, in how they're responding to these tough issues when we get on the same page. believe the gospel is better when we align together. So I want to invite you, if that's you and you're interested, there is a QR code behind me, and our group's ministry is also in the lobby if you want to find them back there. This is how I want to close the service today. I want to affirm again that our faith is firm in Jesus and our priority is and will always be love first for God and then for other people and so as the team comes up to lead us in the closing psalm I'm going to ask that you stand where you're at we're going to pray together a prayer of 
offering to God, of asking Him to do in us what only He can do. And I'm going to ask you to join me in that prayer. Let's do that. Father, we thank you for your word because it gives us such clear guidelines and clear teaching and truth that we need for our lives. God, some is so easy and clear to understand, others complex and difficult, and we've got to wrestle through it. God, I thank you for the way that your spirit enters that space with us. God, I pray that you would help us to, to reaffirm again that our priority is always going to be love. Not the, the wishy-washy cultural kind that, that ebbs and flows and comes and goes, but God, a love that is rooted in the work and in the person of Jesus. God, bring us back to that first love. And God, keep our faith strong. There are a thousand different ways that our faith is under attack, not only in the cultural sense, but God, in our, in our very fiber of our being. There is an enemy that wants to destroy. God, would you help us to have a firm faith in these difficult days? And God, we will continue to worship you. We'll continue to glorify you because you're good and you're worthy of our praise. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. If you were inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service time, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.